He's breaking it down so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. The most intriguing talk in talk radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Caroline Corey is our very special guest. She's the producer, director, uh, and she's an award-winning filmmaker and executive producer and founder of Amanon Media. And what a career she's having and has had. Today, we're talking about A Tear in the Sky. It is a must-watch and it is a documentary on UFOs, and this is a must-watch for everyone who's on all sides of this issue, whether you're a believer or non-believer, this is a must-watch. Caroline, how are you? I'm doing great, Frank. Thanks for having me. Yes, I, I think it's a must-watch because what we've done in this film has never been done before, you know, so it's very, very exciting. If you can tell us and fill us in on what that is without spoiling, I, we want everybody to watch. But what do you find uh, unique about your latest experience with this film that you haven't experienced before? So, you know, those uh, the Navy came out with these uh, videos that uh, showed tic-tac-like objects, so UFOs that were traveling through the sky at extraordinary speed, changing direction, basically saying these are UFOs. And uh, then released uh, other uh, footage since then and reports. So at least the Navy and the Pentagon are admitting there is something in the sky. We don't know what it is. And so uh, when I wanted to make the film, I wanted to bring more credibility to the phenomenon. And so I decided to do a scientific investigation, which I was very shocked to find out that no one had ever done anything like this before in real time. So it's not like we're studying old footage that's already out there. So we teamed up with scientists and the Navy folks, actually, who were on the ship, the USS Princeton at the time, and uh, we had a crazy amount of technology. Uh, we're talking cameras, we're talking night vision, FLIR thermal cameras, military grade, um, you know, optical um, uh, spectrum analyzers, magnetometers, uh, radiation detector. I mean, across the spectrum of physics, literally. And uh, we went to the same location as those uh, Navy ships that, that witnessed uh, the anomalies in the Catalina area uh, for five days. Uh, day and night, we were monitoring the sky, and we ended up capturing very, very anomalous objects. And so... Uh, Things that maybe some people have seen, some of the, the orbs, but some of the other things were totally unexpected. For example, you had the things that uh, appear, and they would tilt, they would rotate, then they would just disappear. They would register cold on the thermal camera, so they have a propulsion system that we don't know about, for sure. Um, they would, we had, we captured objects that were again raining down into the water at very high speed. We're talking 20,000 miles an hour and more, just dropping, dropping in the, in the water. Um, and we did capture actually one object that looked exactly like the Navy Tic Tac. It was kind of long, elongated, uh, object traveling sideways against the wind. 
Um, and finally, we got this, we, we couldn't believe it. We captured some, so, some sort of anomaly. It's kind of like an opening and closing in the sky, just open and close, and then we saw some actual objects. So there are a few things in this film that I've never seen. I think no one's ever seen before. So it's very, very exciting, especially that it was set up scientifically with triangulation and uh, the analysis that was done on them uh, is they're all scientists, hardcore scientists. So this is very much a first and it's very exciting. Caroline Corey is the voice that you're hearing and she is the director and the producer of the award-winning documentary, A Tear in the Sky. It is a must, must check out. And atearinthesky.com is where you can go for a little taste of that. Caroline, when you look at this from the beginning and you anticipate, okay, we're trying to find something different here. We're trying to see something and show people something different because you've been at this a long time. You've had terrific success on the History Channel and everything else. Uh, but what was your expectation of what you were going into and how much did you exceed or uh, meet your expectations? Yeah, so going in, to be honest, I was just hoping to get one anomalous thing. I was like, just give me something, you know, that looks so anomalous that we could uh, make the, you know, prove our point, you know what I mean? But uh, so that's why our expectations weren't that high, but we, we knew we were going to capture something just because we had so much equipment. I mean, the odds of capturing nothing at all were not, you know, I, I mean, we just, we just knew something was going to happen. Um, but we weren't expecting the type of things that we've captured and the amount in such a short time. So imagine in five days, we ended up with these very, very strange, never seen before anomalous objects and events. And we walked away with hundreds of hours of data. You know, we're still going through, the scientists are still going through the data, the camera data, the radiation data, um, thousands and thousands of frames to go through. And so imagine if we were able to get that much in those five days, even though we did have military-grade equipment and, you know, uh, but still, uh, what are the odds, you know, that uh, we get that much? Imagine what the government must have. You know, with the, with the radars and the satellites. So the data is out there. We just, no one's taken the time for some reason to look into it in this way. So that's why this film is literally the first one ever to look into the subject in this way. Caroline Corey, once again, here with me, Frank McKay. Atearinthesky.com is where you should go. That's a great starting point. But before we let you go, Caroline, congrats on all of your success, but certainly on A Tear in the Sky. It's a must-watch for anyone. Anyone who's intellectually curious has to tune in. Give us anything that we haven't talked about, and I know you're on the run. Uh, give us any other social media sites or websites that we haven't mentioned here. Yeah, I think the best way is to go to com, and they'll see all the platforms where it's showing, you know, Amazon, iTunes, and everything else. 
but also they'll see all, all our social media links on that website. And it's good to stay in touch because, like I said, even after this film, we will be releasing more and more data and we're doing uh, like um, presentations and conferences as we go along, as we discover more. So there's definitely more to the story and that's the best place to go online, etairinthesky.com. Caroline, thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. Appreciate it. Caroline Corey, everyone, uh, she's absolutely terrific, and you've seen her work over the years, Unexplained and Ancient Aliens, you know, a big part of History Channel's work in this field. And look, I know a lot of people roll their eyes, and, and some don't, but, uh, you know, check it out. If you're intellectually curious, you're going to give everything a chance, and you know, here she's promises and others promise that with a, a tear in the sky that you're seeing things that you've never seen before in real time and i guess the term in real time is the key factor there and when you're in a situation when you're analyzing old data you could say well this happened here and i haven't seen it so you know i can't vouch certainly this is the type of thing that if you're into this conversation if you're into the argument either way whether aliens are here whether you know ufo's are here then you know obviously ufo's have appeared things that that are unidentified uh, but what they are and what they're carrying or what they appear to be is always what the question is. Frank McKay here, once again, a tear in the sky.com is where you go. But this is something to watch. I've always said this and I've always told my kids, I, look, there are billions upon billions upon billions of, of stars in the sky. Our sun is a star, obviously. And we're in that Goldilocks belt or that Goldilocks distance from the sun where it's uh, not too warm, where we can sustain life and it doesn't dry us up. And it's warm enough where we can sustain life. It's just, just right, just perfect. And the chances that there aren't other planets around billions and billions and billions of sun, suns up there, you know, the stars that fall into the Goldilocks uh, you know, threshold. It's ridiculous to believe that there's not other life out there. Question is, did they get here? Do they have uh, the trajectory on their vehicles, whatever, to get here is the question. And, uh, you know, and again, this is the age old question where people go back and forth. Me, for one, I just don't know. The answer is I don't know. I'd love to see something that's proof there. But to think for some reason that we're the only beings in the universe uh, is ridiculous. I mean, it, it is too many stars, too many suns out there, and, and there's too many planets that we have no idea. It's, it, can you get here? Can they get here from there, wherever they are, and can we get there? We obviously can't get there. We'd be there already if we could, and do they have more advancement? What's their trajectory system? What's their, what puts their vehicles in motion? You know, that type of thing. And, you know, if they have the same problems we have or the same advancements, you know, they're not able to reach us. But, again, it still remains to be seen. This is something for those who ponder these type of conversations, these type of questions. A tear in the sky dot com is a place to go and check out the documentary. Frank McKay signing off. Caroline Corey has been our very special guest. Caroline Corey, and she's the documentarian uh, director, producer of A Tear in the Sky. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You've been listening to Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. The most intriguing talk in talk radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with the author of a terrific book. It is a necessity to get this book. It must get unapologetically glorious, the power of of owning your story without shame or blame, and especially for a story like this, no truer words have ever been said. Kelly Teal is our very special guest, and she's a survivor from the Nexium cult, Keith Ranieri. Folks will realize and be glad that he's put away. He's in prison for a long time, but not before a lot of damage has been done mentally, emotionally to so many women, so many people and families around. But Kelly Teal is just a great example of how to land on your feet and to turn any experience into a surviving experience and building strength from it. Absolutely thrilled to have you, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, like I said, thrilled to have you. You know, I usually ask the question to some people when they do a biography, was it therapeutic? It's almost a rhetorical question to ask you. I'm sure this was part of your therapy, right? Was to be constantly talking about this and to putting things into place and maybe even therapeutic to know that it's helping other people. Yeah, it definitely is. And um, it's funny because I did go into a lot of therapy after Nixium. And um, I tried to get two different people to write this book for me, and it just wasn't working. And so I had to do it myself, and that was the therapeutic part. I was avoiding that, but I did it. Were there things that came out in the book that you had blocked out, and suddenly they came back to you? Did you have that experience at all? I had a few times where I had sort of blocked things out. I think I had minimized them more than blocked them out, though. I sort of made them less. Um, important. And when I started breaking it down and looking at it, I realized how bad it really was. What was your experience with the Bronfman sisters, if any? Did you get close to them? Did you get to know Claire and Sarah? Um, I knew them both. I knew Claire and Sarah. Claire was, I was closer to her. I spent more time with her. Um, And uh, Sarah I spent a little bit of time with at Vanguard Week. Um, one of the funny things about Claire, um, when she first met me and was in a, a group session with me, she, of all people, told me that I was entitled. <laughs> so I, that was kind of funny. Wow. Wow, right. And if, yeah. for those who <laughs> yeah. don't know, the Bronfmans are the heirest, well, they were the heirest to Edgar Bronfman's fortune, uh, and that's the Seagram's fortune. I don't remember whether it was Claire or Sarah, but I got a call from, I think it was Sarah, I got a call from Sarah at one point to meet the Dalai Lama and somebody had put her uh-huh. on the phone with me and I came up to meet the Dalai Lama in Albany. I mean, it's like somebody asking you to, to meet the Pope. 
I didn't know anything about Keith and I didn't know anything about Nexium. And I went up. So I actually have this strange experience with Nexium. And then I traveled down to New York and, you know, spent a little time with the Dalai Lama there. But Keith, he was surrounded. It was easier to get to the Dalai Lama than it was to Keith. And what they said, it was because of the death threats, I guess, from family members. Can you shed any light on that? I think um, some of that was the story, the narrative that he was building up to make people believe that he was very, very special. Because, as you know, with a cult, you always have to have a charismatic leader. Um, so I think some of it was story. And I think some of it very well could have been um, some families were very upset and may have been coming after him. But he made it seem, I think, bigger than it really was. What was your first impression of Keith Ranieri? My first impression was uh, I thought he was kind of geeky looking and short and not very attractive, and I couldn't figure out why he wanted to meet me. I had just been to Albany for a few days um, during my first 16-day session of the um, curriculum, and he wanted to meet me, and I, I thought that was really odd. And so when I met him, I was very unimpressed considering what I had heard, that he was this, you know, third smartest man in the world and uh, had created all this curriculum. He was friends with the Dalai Lama, et cetera, et cetera, all part of the, his narrative. Who was the go-between to originally introduce you to Keith? I mean, how did that all happen? So the person who introduced me to Keith were the people that were teaching the classes in Albany. And so they thought that I would be someone that he'd want to meet. So they asked, one of them asked me to meet him, Mark Elliott, and I originally said no, because I thought it was just kind of strange. And then um, another teacher by the name of Jim Del Negro, who has since passed away, um, he said, you know, this is a big, big deal to meet, to meet Keith. You can't say no. You just absolutely cannot say no. So I put some requirements on it. I said, you know, I'm so exhausted, and I really... I need to get back to my hotel room at a decent hour. So, you know, I'll give you like 45 minutes. That's it. And they, and they were good with that. So I met Keith very briefly and then went back to my hotel. The, the, experience, that was the experience as a whole, you know, I imagine is like no other that you could imagine. Is it similar to what you've heard since? In other words, does your experience mirror some of the other survivors of cults out there, you know, whether it be, you know, Manson type folks or others, or do you think it's a unique experience for each person? Well, I think it's definitely unique for each person, but I think all cults in general have certain elements that can identify them as a cult. Um, I think that for me, when I first got out, I didn't have a lot of experience, obviously, with cults and didn't really know what they were until I saw Wild Wild Country, which is a Netflix um, documentary on Osho. And I watched that, and it was sort of like a come to Jesus in a way. It was sort of like, oh, my gosh, there's other things out here just like this, very similar things. And so that was really eye-opening for me because when I first left the cult, I was I left because I had to because things were so bad, but I didn't hadn't processed anything yet. So I would say... All cults have some overlying elements that are the same. Some are different, obviously, but most of them have some things that are the same. Well, I know there's a lot of people waiting to talk to you. Boy, I would love to speak to you for a much longer period of time. I want to congratulate you on your survival and where you landed on your feet and how you've carried yourself since and how you're helping so many other people. Congratulations on the book. If, oh, there's, anything, thank you. if there's anything else you want to add, and please do. And before you go, please leave a social media site, a website where people could follow along with what you're doing. 
Absolutely. Um, I would just love to tell people where you can get my book. Um, it's on Amazon under either Kelly Teal, T-H-I-E-L, or Unapologetically Glorious. You can also go to kellytealbook.com to get the book. And you can follow me on Instagram at the Kelly Teal. And I just encourage everyone to, to find your story, embrace your own life story, and with, without shame or blame, and follow your journey, and just be glorious. Kelly, thank you very much for being here. We'll be talking about the book as we let you go. Thanks again. Great. Thank you so much. Kelly Teal, everyone. And again, she's the survivor of the Nexium cult. And what a story that whole situation is. Again, I had no idea who Raniere was. And they had reached out to me through the Bromfins. And I don't know, remember whether it was, it was you know, actually, there was a political conduit through where they reached out to me, and I'll leave that name private. I don't. I haven't spoken to that individual in a long while, but they wanted to get in contact with me, you know, about a bizarre situation. Nexium was wrapped around or wrapping themselves around the Dalai Lama, and I didn't know anything about Ranieri. I didn't know anything about Nexium. I knew Edgar Bronfman. I didn't know him, but I had met him a couple of times, and he was the CEO of Seagram's and he's a multi-billionaire and whatever. So someone said, you know, would you take a phone call from, and again, I apologize. I don't remember whether it was Claire or Sarah who asked me if I would spend five to 10 minutes with the Dalai Lama. And I was looking at the phone, like, are you you kidding me? You know, like to me, it was a no brainer, you know, an honor, obviously, to be with the Dalai Lama. And, you know, I did. and, And I brought a friend of mine up there and I forget what theater it was in Albany, but I wanted to meet Ranieri after I started hearing the story, and I had a little bit of experience with cults, not belonging to one, by the way, but, you know, denouncing one, and I don't know, maybe he knew that, and they really tried to keep me away, but I was interested in meeting him. I wanted to see what he was about, and every time I got anywhere, it was all women, by the way, and they were all in, like, white robes in the audience. You could see them. You couldn't miss them. There was all women around him and they all kissed on the lips right they all greeted each other like that and it was just keith and all of these women surrounding him and it was a bizarre situation and i tried to get close to him in this theater and you know again there's seats there and this is after the dalai lama had left the building or whatever so i started walking towards him and i guess they see you coming the area where keith was i noticed they surrounded him they like closed off my path to get to keith it was unbelievable but it was a very organized effort i don't even know what to describe it as but they knew what they were doing and they did it so subtly that it was pretty incredible so i tried to go a different direction and they blocked it off again. And then, you know, again, they kept me and anybody who came anywhere near him away, but they did it in such a subtle way. The cult did it in such a subtle way that, I mean, it was impressive almost how they did it. And, you know, I was kind of, you know, I don't know, laughing to myself that, you know, this is something how they're doing it. I tried a couple of different ways. And then finally, a political person that I knew, uh, not the person who got in touch with me originally, but he came over to me, he said, forget it. You'll never get anywhere near him. I said, why is that? And then somebody else said death threats. He's getting death threats from all the family members. And, and I don't know about Edgar, you know, but I mean, I'm sure Edgar could have snapped his fingers and had Keith Raniere, you know, disposed of right a billionaire. But Keith Raniere is this 
insane cult leader that is now in prison for, I think, 125 years or something along those lines. And if you think about it, there's that old joke where, you know, an old man got 150 years and he said to the judge, he says, you know, I don't have 150 years. And the judge said, don't worry, just do what you can. And, you know, I guess the same thing going for Keith. He's certainly not that old. He's my age. I'm 55. And I think Keith's somewhere around there. The Bronfmans are some. I keep bringing them up. And I should explain that when he got Claire and Sarah involved, he was able to use their money, I guess, to track the Dalai Lama. By the way, I'm not passing any judgment on the Dalai Lama. I have no idea what the whole... I have nothing but respect for the Dalai Lama and, you know, all the past Dalai Lamas. But this was an unbelievable coup that Nexium, the cult, pulled off. They got the Dalai Lama there, and it just... You know, people from all over the world want to meet the Dalai Lama. And, and I think I, if I remember correctly, I traveled down to the Beacon Theater... Not with them, but, you know, like in the same, I don't know how to word it, same time frame that they went. So I think they did Albany and then they did the Beacon Theater in Manhattan. And I showed up there and I spoke to the Dalai Lama, you know, for a couple of minutes there. But anyway, it was you know, a very pleasant guy and whatever. You know, it's funny. And again, I hate to make light of a situation. I'm going to remind folks, too, that Kelly Teal, it's spelled like Thiel, but it's Kelly Teal is the name. And she is a survivor of the Nexium cult. And her book is unapologetically glorious, The Power of Owning Your Story Without Shame or Blame. And it's, you know, again, well said because she's, you know, unapologetic about it. It happens. I mean, people, you know, good people, and I'm sure intelligent people get caught up in cults. I've known many to do so. I'm sure in my obituary. The word cult is going to appear somewhere, uh, if not multiple times, because of the Fred Newman situation. And I won't go into that. That's a whole detail. The, the late Fred Newman was a member of the Independence Party, and they had a big chunk of it when I came in. And then, you know, we extracted them eventually from the party where they had nothing, the Independence Party. And I was the chair of the Independence Party. That's why I was reached out to also from the Bronfman's. And, you know, to meet the Dalai Lama. Bizarre thing is what they wanted me for, what their interest in me was, is they wanted, well, I'll give this background, and I knew very little about the Dalai Lama before it, but they had this plan, someone had this plan, that the Dalai Lama, who is, he's a refugee, right? He's a man without a country, you know, he's, he's, should be from Tibet, but he's exiled from Tibet, from the Chinese or whatever have exiled him. And again, I don't know the exact history of that, but they had interest or they had an idea that the Seneca Nation, the Seneca Indians, the Seneca Native Americans have a big piece of land there reservation is a large piece of land and someone had this you know, brilliant idea to, and i'm saying brilliant with tongue in cheek that the senecas if they gave a tiny little piece of their land or dedicated a tiny little piece of their land and called it new tibet or whatever they could set up that nexium would be able to set up there now by the way you know i've known the people i don't know them well but i've known the folks the chief and the different folks 
at the Senecas. I and I have no idea that they would be interested in anything like that. You know, they're a very successful tribe and very proud people and, you know, nothing but great things to say about the Seneca Indians. But somebody had this idea that they could do that. And then Nexium would be, you know, by the way, they're smart people. The Seneca Indians are very smart people. They're the ones who manufacture Seneca cigarettes and billions and billions of dollars a year are made through that and, you know, whatever. But someone in Nexium or someone around Nexium was thinking that this was possible. And they were talking to me about negotiating it. Well, not necessarily with the Seneca tribe, but they needed somebody who had relationships on the Senate majority side, which I did. That was the Republicans and then the assembly majority, which are the Democrats. And I did as being an independent, I did. And the governor at the time. And I think it had to be Cuomo, I'm sure. And I'm trying to think of timeline or if it wasn't Cuomo it was David Patterson or before him, Spitzer and I had relationships with all of them as well as Pataki. So they wanted me or they wanted me to be introduced to this idea so that I would maybe come in as an advocate. Of course, I didn't. I took the opportunity to meet the Dalai Lama. That's about it. No one ever. Well, I mean, a couple of people asked me if, if I was interested and I, I said, it's a cult. I said, I don't know anything about them. For all I know, Ranieri is clean or whatever. But I said, it's a cult. You know, obviously it's a cult. And, you know, I said to the guy who said that people were trying to kill him, that if that many people want to kill him, he, he's obviously a bad guy. And every cult leader I've ever met, you know, again, and I'm not comparing Fred Newman to him. Fred Newman's a different, different type of cult leader, but he was a political cult leader. This was different. This was you know, religious, and this was based around money, and all cults usually are. But he branded, Keith Ranieri branded these women with his initials, including the Bronfmans. Just amazing, you know, to have a daughter or a sister or whatever, former significant other, to be branded by some maniac. And he's rightfully doing his time in jail. And to all the families who lost people to Nexium, you know, we, our heart goes out. I'm certainly not making light of it, but Nexium is something I have this one little weird experience with. And again, Kelly Teal, spelt like Thiel, but Kelly Teal has been our very special guest. She was part of an expose series two on stars and called Seduced. And we should all check that out. I've got to check it out myself. Unapologetically glorious, the power of owning your Story Without Shame or Blame is her book. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. And... Uh, 
I would like to see everybody. I'll be there this Friday, July 1st at the West Hampton Beach Performing Arts Center. And you can see comedian Whitney Cummings there. And it's part of the Touch Me Tour. And she's she's terrific. She's multi-talented. Her her, her writing is, is legendary. Her directing is excellent production. Uh, you know, Two Broke Girls. Whitney, I thought was, you know, it was a short-lived, but I loved it. I thought it was one of the best sitcoms I ever saw in my life. And, and I loved ah. it. I binged it not long ago. But everyone, please, this Friday, 7-1, July 1st, 8 p.m. Come to West Hampton Beach Performing Arts Center, and I'll see you all there. Whitney Cummings, how are you? I'm good. How's it going? Doing terrific. Uh, excited to see you in person. Uh, have you been touring uh, this whole time, or is it? Uh, are you just kind of getting back into it from the lockdown season, or, um, or or did you not miss a beat? You know what? There was definitely a couple months that comedians were just running around in a panic because you know, in a pandemic, we are the least needed people. <laughs> In terms of what we do yeah. for a living, we were like, uh, okay, so we basically decided to, to put thousands of people in a small room and have them exhale droplets on each other. <laughs> like, this is our actual business model. Like, did not account for droplets. Like, shoulder to shoulder going ah, all show so we were definitely a little bit nervous, but I think that the pressure was good in a lot of ways because it forced us all to kind of. You know, I mean, look, I'm not proud of all the things I've done on Instagram over the pandemic. <laughs> uh, it's things got bleak. You, you, you took away, the pandemic took away our drug of choice, which is attention from strangers. And so <laughs> once we kind of like the panic, you know, died down, then we we're like, you know what? There's ways to do this. Like there's ways there's ways to connect to people online that doesn't have to be corny or embarrassing. Whereas I think most comedians were very resistant to social media because we're like, this is, you know, at least the older ones were like, this is, a, this is live. Like we need an audience. We're such, we're so, we're such curmudgeons. We're such brats. Um, and, uh, we're like, we'll do comedy only if it's between the hours of eight and 9 PM on Fridays after four whiskeys. It's like, we can still be funny, you know, uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. So, so, you know, there started to be these zoom shows that popped up, you know, and, uh, and we just had to adapt, you know, I was doing shows, uh, outside Taylor Tomlinson and I um, co-headlined a tour where we were doing shows outside like in parking lots and people would honk at you. It was, <laughs> look, it was de looking back. I'm like, how desperate were we for attention from strangers? Like that was, that was a little, we could have taken another two months downtime and not ran around parking lots and subjected our fans to like having to hold mace in a parking lot to see a comedian yell about masks. But <laughs> You know, but everyone was, trying. you know, because I think the most important thing is we were trying to make sure all these venues stayed in business. You know, we we're like, we're going to come back. This is going to work itself out. But what if there's no comedy clubs by the time we come back? What if there's no theaters left? Like, because they didn't make any money. Or, you know, what if a bunch of great comedians had to quit and like, you know, do their plan B? Well, some did. And I think a lot of people are psyched about it. But uh, <laughs> they're going to quit because there's so many comedians that were living, you know, check to check. So we also wanted to just make sure we kept the business running so people could actually freaking work um and that we didn't want to come back okay say two years later things do open up and we suck as comedians because we haven't done it in two years <laughs> this is that's an even worse you know and uh because it's the one skill where you have to do it on stage to practice where there's no way to even stay good in the pandemic you know so we were like oh god and um 
you know, people are always already hitting us in the face on stage. Like we got to really, we can't, we can't afford to make any mistakes right now as comedians. <laughs> I, I know. Listen, I know you're half kidding, but was there a lot of rust not being on stage for a while? Did you, did you have to get used to it again? Or was it kind of like the bicycle thing where you, you, you never forget how to do it? I mean, it depends, you know, it's, it's, it's bicycles don't change every six months, you know? So that's what happens with comedy is like, you know, comedy is fashion and people, you know, we have, we live in this world now where people want to give you feedback. They're going to give you feedback. And sometimes we don't listen enough and sometimes we listen too much, you know? So in this, you know, there, we have to change the way we do comedy right now and it's not going to get worse. Like it's as long as people still come to live shows, this whole you can't say anything everyone's so sensitive it's gonna make comedy better you know and like i keep saying like even if you don't think i'm funny or don't like me or think i'm shrill and annoying first of all we have a lot in common <laughs> second of all you know come to the shows come see a show just to be exposed first of all to a point of view you haven't seen you know i'm not saying comedians always have great point of views but now we live in this time where you know, you, you, you know, everything is catered to you. You have an algorithm. You're only seeing the news you want to see. You're only following the people you want to follow. You're only seeing ads for clothes that you would wear. It's like, this is how we're going to be like as a species completely decline and become really dumb because we're just here. Yep, I think we, we lost Whitney for a moment. Uh, she is performing live. At, and she's performing live now, right? And she, what did she say? She's in Canada, I think she said. But anyway, she's performing live at the West Hampton Beach Performing Arts Center this Friday, uh, 7 1, July 1st. You can see her in person. I'll be there. And I'm encouraging everyone else to be there. I, see, I look at it differently. She, I think she's going to call back in a second. She just, uh, we just lost her for a split second. But I, I look at it differently. I look at. I look at uh, the, the comedian of being necessary. I'm trying her back in case you hear a dial tone there. Uh, I but, mean, look, they, did you see they tried to silence me? Maybe <laughs> this is, it's, it's AT&T's tried to silence the comedians now. First it was Will Smith. Now it's AT&T. <laughs> but listen, I, I was just saying, I kept talking as, as we lost you. I, I kept saying, like, I, I disagree with you on something. I, I think we needed comedians more than ever during the, uh, the pandemic. And well, we're still in a pandemic, right? But during the lockdown, I, I'm thrilled that you did that and uh, that you went into parking lots. And I, 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 you know, and I know you're half kidding on it, but I followed you. I followed you during, oh. during the whole thing. I thought you were terrific. I thought you were right on with so many different things. Look, I, I know you're busy, and you, I, what are you in Canada right now? Are you? Uh... Uh, I'm back in Los Angeles, and then I come to the Hamptons this weekend to, for my show at West Hampton Performing Arts Center. Yeah, so we'll uh, we're going to be there. I'm going to be there, and hopefully everybody listening will be there. It's this Friday, uh, July 1st, beyond beyond the tour, and it's the Touch Me tour. Whitney, uh, is there anything else you could uh, tell us about? How fluid is your your next year? Is it a lot of shows mixed in? A lot, with a lot of shows. Of you know, and I was excited to have a little bit of time to do movies. I was in the um, Foo Fighters movie. It's called Studio 666. It's oh. just a silly, you know, comedy horror movie, which, you know, I think everyone right now needs entertainment. That You know, look, again, and with the show, uh, you know, that I'm doing in uh, the Hamptons, like, 
Come for no other reason except I do not lecture you on how to vote. I'm not going to talk about politics. Like, there needs to be some entertainment that people yeah. can go to just to take a break. And I'm going to try to corner that market. Everyone is right now, like, you know, weighing in on politics. And I think people need a break. That's what comedians are supposed to do. So Studio 666 is a movie that's just a silly, schlocky, hilarious, really well-done horror movie with, um, you know, Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. And uh, it's like one of those um, splashy horror movies like you saw back in the day. Just silly, blood, gore, amazing music. I was in the Machine Gun Kelly movie as well, which was just a stoner comedy that's just fun. You know, so I'm trying to just be a part of things that are fun and a nice distraction from the mass distraction <laughs> you know just so everyone actually can take a break because you know i think that we're on this 24 7 adrenaline self-righteous indignation news cycle where you can't escape politics even if you want to you can't escape talking about you know the horrendous things going on in the world and that's not to say that they're they don't matter but you know i take my job as a clown very seriously <laughs> my job to just go Blah, well what about you forget about all that serious stuff let's talk about dumb stuff but, you know, so I always want to be smart about it. And, you know, I think all of this, um, you know, this reckoning with language and what you can and can't say, it's going to make comedians better and smarter. Um, but at the same time, I like to also say, stay silly. So I, I think comedians, you know, comedy, the promise is thousand people can get in a room. You don't have to agree with each other. You could have all voted different ways, but you can still agree on for two hours um, and be reminded. I think we actually have a lot more in common than we do uh, do not. And I think comedians, it's our job to remind people of that. Listen, you're very modest. I, what a career, what a brilliant career you've put together and still going strong. I could watch you in anything and anything you write. Uh, I'm always interested. And I think a lot of the people listening will say the same, but we're going to come and see you in person before we let you go. Let me give the, uh, the venue once again, West Hampton beach performing arts center this Friday, July 1st, Whitney, can you give us a web, uh, website, website or yeah. a social media site? We can follow along. Yes, sir. It's just WhitneyCummings.com and then my Instagram. And I just got very into TikTok. I just got time to learn it. So I am also uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all the things, all the things. Whitney Cummings, thanks for being here. We'll see you Friday. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you taking the time. Whitney Cummings, everyone, has been our very special guest. West Hampton Beach Performing Arts Center this Friday, and and just uh, so you guys know, I mean she's uh, she's more than a, a than a stand-up. I mean she's a show creator. She is a uh, a producer, a director. She does so many things. Well, Two Broke Girls was uh, was was her show, by the way, and um, she was the creator. She was the the producer of that show, and she, I think she brought that to uh, to the world and. And, you know, what success they had there, uh, terrific. I mean, really, really put together a crowd. I, and I'm, I'm being very sincere about Whitney, the, the sitcom. It was a it was short-lived sitcom, you know, maybe two seasons, something like that. And uh, and it's funny. I watched it recently, and I, I thought it's funny. She's, she's great. She's, she is very talented. She sounds manic here. You know, she just, I, I thought she was in Canada, but she's, she came back from Canada. And, you know, she was telling me a little bit off mic. Uh, about it, I just assumed she was there, and then we lost her. And uh, listen, check her out uh, in West Hampton this Friday. I'll be there. Frank McKay signing off. Whitney Cummings has been our very special guest. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down. 
This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays.